Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. I hope the break wasn't too long, and I hope you all had a wonderful season. Today we're going to begin our Tulip series, and we're going to begin the Tulip series by discussing uh, what you can expect, the limitations, the broad outline, and then we'll move into the first part of the historical points of interest, and we're going to talk about why we're talking about that. And uh, before we begin, I just want to remind uh, folk, if you are a patron, you have full access to the show notes right now as I'm recording. It's 30 pages. It's going to be a whopper by the time it's done. But basically, it's all the footnotes, all, all the you know written notes for the show for patrons. That's your perk for becoming a part of the Christ Secure support team. And you have those for other episodes like the Apocrypha episodes and the historical existence of Jesus, stuff like that. Um, but if you have enjoyed Christ Secure, you want to support Christ Secure, you can uh, join the support team and get those perks at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the cure. So let's jump into explaining the Tulip series, what you can expect, uh, the general outline, and the goal of this series. So first off, if you don't know, TULIP is an acronym or an acrostic. I can't remember which one's which right now. Uh, that is a summarization of Calvinistic soteriology. That is the doctrine of salvation. Uh, so TULIP would stand for T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints, or some people like to say preservation of the saints. Uh, the Tulip series is not just a Calvinist series, though. Uh, that was just the easiest way to name the series with a short name so that we could, you know, label them. But the Tulip series is going to be a comparison of Calvinism and classical or Reformed Arminianism predominantly. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in a second. So it's not just about Tulip. And obviously, that acronym can't touch on every concept that we're going to discuss. But this is what the series is called, the Tulip series. So let's talk about our current general structure, which will probably change. And these are the broad points, which means that there's going to be episodes within each of these points. And I've I've demonstrated that with the total depravity one here in a minute. But first, we're going to begin with P, uh, which is my preliminary discussion. And that's on the historical points of interest. This will be explained why we're bothering with these historical points of interest, but mainly it will help knock down major straw men and will help you define or know what terms are being thrown around in discussions on these topics. So after our historical points of interest, which will be a couple of episodes uh, that are highly selective and what concepts I feel uh, should be brought over, uh, we're going to go into total depravity. So that'd be point one. And like I said, these points will have branch off episodes within um, you know, each broader category. So total depravity, for example, we'll talk about original sin, the depth of depravity, the will and sin, human responsibility and depravity, and so on and so forth. Um, and then point two will be the necessity and the doctrine of grace. Three will be the will of God, sovereignty, foreknowledge, and providence. That's going to be probably one of the longer sections. After that is election, predestination, and reprobation. Uh, four is the scope of the atonement, uh, limited and unlimited. We're going to just focus on the scope of the atonement, but we may bring up like the governmental theory of atonement uh, just because 
a lot of Arminians are pinned with that when they don't necessarily believe only that. And then we'll talk about irresistible grace and resistible grace and the call of God, which I will argue that irresistible grace and resistible grace is really where things boil down in terms of like the major pivotal points on these systems. And then we'll talk conversion and regeneration and then perseverance of the saints. Um, I don't think I have my numbering correct here. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So we have nine points as our general outline with including the preliminary of historical points of interest. And that's our general um, outline. So again, we will begin by touching on the human condition and we'll look at how the, the systems view the human condition and understand the condition of man. And this will move us logically into the necessity and the doctrine of grace. Um, and, and this is where breaking up systems gets hard because everything meshes together, right? So irresistible grace is one of our last points, but we need to talk about the necessity and the doctrine of grace and the human will prior to irresistible grace to really make sense of other things. So because of the nature of this series, we will have overlap, but I've done my best to, to categorize these in a way that they're easy to reference and go back to. So if you notice, we, we didn't really follow TULIP per se. We have total depravity, which is obviously within TULIP, but the necessity of grace and the will of God come before the you, that is unconditional election, because unconditional election or election, predestination, and reparation are point four on our list. And then we have limited atonement and then uh, irresistible grace. Then we add in conversion and regeneration before adding in the P. So it doesn't follow TULIP per se. TULIP is my bones, and then the rest of the stuff for the muscles and the meat, right? Um, so, in regards to what systems are going to be examined in this discussion, uh, we are focusing on Calvinism, and we will talk about, you know, historic Calvinism versus a little bit neo-Calvinism, you know, modern Calvinism, and the, the kind of differing views in Calvinism, such as infralapsarianism, supralapsarianism, and we will define all these terms, uh, and then along with those systems within Calvinism or, you know, more specific articulations of Calvinism, we will compare classical or reformed Arminianism. Um, that's going to be our primary uh, comparison. Now, at different times, we will introduce other traditions, such as the broad SBC presentation, and SBC is the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and they have a recent volume called um, Calvinism, a Biblical and Theological Critique. And then at times we may bring in Lutheranism. We may bring in elements of Eastern Orthodoxy uh, where there are broad claims where I say things like all traditions agree upon X, Y, and Z. Well, I'll back that up so that I can uh, substantiate those claims, but that you can see points of agreement. Um and at other times, I may evoke other traditions simply for the sake of contrast without the tradition being expounded on much. So, for example, whenever we talk about total depravity, whenever we get to original sin, I will bring up Eastern Orthodoxy's idea of ancestral sin. But that could, in theory, be the only point where you hear about Eastern Orthodoxy's view on the matter. Knowing myself, it won't be, but in theory, it could be. The primary focus will be on Arminianism Classical Arminianism, that is, versus Calvinism. Um, and hopefully this approach will make more sense as we go along. And hopefully you understand why I'm being selective. It's difficult to ensure that you're properly representing every view. 
without doing tons of research, especially when it comes to views that aren't as systematic, that don't seem to really care about these discussions as much, such as Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodoxy has a presentation against Calvinism from the Reformation era. Of course, it's kind of a straw man, and they're against Calvinism, but whenever they talk about positively their positions, there's still discussions in their own camps about what do they mean uh, by the extent of depravity. And so then you start going down this wormhole. Like I went down a rabbit hole looking for, um, you know, do Eastern Orthodox adherents see themselves as semi-Pelagian? And then I went through another, you know, rabbit hole on semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism is a pain. But I went down another rabbit hole about how Catholicism at the Council of Trent um, affirmed the Council of Orange against semi-Pelagianism. Uh, but then there's debates about whether or not Catholicism is in praxis actually semi-Pelagianism. There's a whole bunch of things like that. So there are times when I did go down a rabbit hole and I'll include something, but a lot of the times the focus is going to be on, again, classical Arminianism and Calvinism. If you don't know what any of the words I just said were, um, don't worry, again, we're going to go through and define everything as we move through the series. And that's really one of the thrusts of what I'm going to try to do in this series. Um, we'll talk about that here in a second. So now the limitation of this series as you can ascertain from what I just said, is that our comparison is limited and selective. Um, I would argue that the the debate is really hinging on irresistible versus resistible grace. That would tell you a lot about a system. Um, but again, it's limited because I'm not going to go into all the Lutheranism. I'm not going to go into all these other issues. We're going to focus on two streams of tradition primarily. And so that said... My sources on the presentation of classical or reformed Arminianism um, are works by Matthew Pinson, Leroy Fourlines, and Roger Olson, and some Thomas Oden. But even this presentation is limited because they, in particular, offer a presentation of Jacob Arminianus that is more removed from Molinism or the influence of Molina than other Arminians would present. Uh, for example, I was talking to a reformed Arminian uh, about you know, classical Arminianism, and they find Matthew Pinson and Leroy Fourlines and Roger Olson to be bad examples of classic Arminianism because they would argue that Jacob Arminius was more aligned with Molinism than what these other guys are talking about. So because there's always internal debates that, that make things a little bit more into the weeds, I'm still going to be limited in that view. And so I will try to bring up like, hey, you know, the typical presentation is X, Y, and Z. Some people say this, but I'm going with the traditional explanation. So whenever there's divergences like that, I will bring them up as best as I can. Will I miss something? Absolutely. So if you're listening to something you're like, why didn't he bring up that? I'm going to miss stuff. I'm, I'm doing the best I can with this. Um, it's actually quite difficult to organize. So I'm going with Penson, Four Lines, Roger Olson as the discussion on classical Arminianism. However, in the book, Why I Am Not an Arminian, the authors, who are Calvinists because they're writing Why I'm Not an Arminian, do present the view of Arminius with Molina's influence, and so that will come up. Um, we won't go too far into Molinism um, because that's a whole other can of worms. We're, we're going to focus on the Pence and Four Lines Olson presentation. So I'm going to do my best to make sure you know everything's brought up, but what are you going to do? Um, now... With that all said, to one degree or another, our examination will be shallow at some points, more so than others. 
not every topic is equal to begin with. Um, some topics are far more complex, and so I will do my best to be consistent. Um, but I I may drop the ball sometimes, and so I just want to throw that out there so that it's um, so it's out there. Just as well, I will attempt to present positions from their sources in their own words so that we can ensure that we're properly representing various positions. And like I said, I want this to be accessible, so we will define terms. We will have glossary episodes summarizing key terms. We will try to summarize every term uh, that is important. Some things will be assumed, and so if you don't know it, just take the time to pause the episode Go look it up real quick, get an understanding of what it is briefly, and then come back and just like, okay, that's what it means. And uh, I, I want it to be accessible, but there are limitations on on picking and choosing what we define. Um, so um, I will do my best to define all the, the big terms. And really vocabulary is like 80% of the battle here. So what is the goal of the series? Well, the goal of the series is to, again, present a basic comparison and contrast of major or two major theological systems. Uh, but I want it to be a basic presentation that's not lacking in depth or substance. I want it to be something where it's not like, hey, this is Tulip. You know, these guys believe unconditional election. These guys believe conditional election. Bada bing, bada boom. I don't want it to be like that. I want it to be a little bit more depth. I want to show how the different parts work together um, as best as I can. But I still want it to be basic. And so there's going to be a sense of depth, but there's also going to be a little bit like, hey, this is you need to go dig. This is a launching point for folk, because here's the thing. You will come across this discussion either in your own studies or online, and you will want to work through them. And so I'm hoping that this can be an aid for that. Right. It's not going to ever uh, replace your own study and this series on its own should not convince you one way or another. It should give you a launching point to think through issues a little bit more in depth with prayer and study. Um, so while there will be times where we go into topics that are more difficult, again, my goal will be to define terms so that anyone and everyone can follow and again, conduct that research. I, I want this to be accessible. That said, my goal is for this to not sound polemical. It is to present the positions as best as I can from their own viewpoint and uh, provide my position only at the end of each segment or block when, or where, or how that looks like. I'm not sure. If you've been with Crisis Gear for a long time, you know where I stand. Um, and so if you don't know who I am, then my goal is for you to not know my position until the very end. Um, because that's, I want to be straight and narrow on the objectivity scale, right? And then the last thing, my goal is that this, the series is very cerebral. It's very, um, engaging with the mind. It's very, it requires reflection, critical thinking, very cerebral. And that's great. We're not supposed to disconnect our minds from our, from our emotions, we are holistically to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, mind, right? Whole person. So it's very cerebral. But my hope is that regardless of where you fall in these discussions, regardless of where you start leaning because of these discussions, regardless of any of that, I hope that you find yourself praising God in awe at the face of God's glorious grace and the work of salvation. Because that's what we're going to be talking about ultimately. We're talking about the doctrine of salvation. We're talking about how God 
redeems men who are in need of grace desperately to be saved and the work of Christ to do that. So whenever we're talking about grace, whenever we're talking about total depravity, whenever we're talking about conversion, whenever we're talking about all these other aspects, I hope that it moves you to reflect on your own walk as a Christian, your own experience of God's grace in your life, so that you may have a doxology, a worshipful heart coming out of a very cerebral um, series. And so I want you to have the intellectual side, but I also want to have the heart connected here. And so hopefully we can make that happen. So let's go ahead and get into our first part of the series. Let's That way we can get some meat in the first episode. So we're beginning with the historical points of interest, and this section as a whole will cover pre-Pelagianism, Pelagianism, um, a brief discussion on monergism, synergism, semi-Pelagianism, Reformation-era history with Luther in brief, and more focus on Arminius with a little bit of Calvin, and then that will wrap up before we move into our first main point of total depravity. How far we get here? I think we're just going to talk about pre-Pelagianism before we get to Pelagianism, and then we'll start Pelagianism in our next episode. So when we're talking about the systems dealing with salvation or the doctrines of salvation, such as Calvinism and Arminianism, we, we need to have some historical discussion. I thought about completely bypassing it, but really um, discussing the Pelagian and semi-Pelagian controversies is so important. Um, because of how those terms are thrown around. So defining semi-Pelagian is particularly important, and it becomes a major point of contention in modern discussions. Uh, so the, these episodes are necessary, especially in eliminating straw men on both sides of the aisle immediately. And you'll see how that, that comes into play pretty pretty early on, I think. So that said, let's uh, focus on the pre-Reformation historical discussions. Um, and again, in these historical points of interest episodes, we will have some key terms and ideas for the series that are introduced and defined, but they will be more fleshed out later on. So we will try to define all the relevant terms. Some points may be assumed again, independent searches may be necessary, um, or these earlier installments may need to be revisited by individuals once the series has progressed into different points. So pre-Pelagianism, which is simply the era before Pelagius and the Pelagian controversy in the 400s came about. Um, and in this early era, there is a diverse expression of soteriology that is the doctrine related to salvation. So here's soteriology. That's those doctrines related to salvation, how one is saved. Now, early Christian writers were more focused on Christology than soteriology. And you see that very quickly. Um, and Christology are those doctrines related to Christ. We talked about Christology quite a bit. And so because of that focus, we find that Christian writers typically just kind of quoted the New Testament, but without much exposition about what they meant specifically, which is understandable and unhelpful. They, they presupposed a knowledge of it, probably, and they had other issues uh, going against Gnostics, and then you had the modalists, and then you had uh, the Arians and semi-Arians, you know. You got it. So what we find is that there's not a lot of text regarding foreknowledge and predestination, but there are some references to election being on the basis of foreseen faith or obedience, which would be more akin to a conditional election, which again, we will define later on if you don't know. Furthermore, 
Christians did speak a lot about the free will of man, and it's usually in the context of moral responsibility and accountability. And so the discussions on free will would be frequent to uphold the moral integrity of Christians, um, to, to judge or um, measure pagan living. And what this really boils down to, though, is that we don't know much about how early Christians understood the dynamic between free will and God's sovereignty. And so that's, which is really one of the points where things get kind of hard because whenever we're talking Calvinism and Arminianism and everything in between, um, to some extent or another, even with Augustine, they would say we agree that man has freedom of the will so as to have moral responsibility and accountability, right? Um, so the the discussion that needs to happen, don't know where they fell, was, well, how does this free will relate to, A, uh, the corruption or the inclination to sin and divine sovereignty? Now, in the early church on the atonement, we do find the atonement being spoken of in universal terms, meaning that Christ died for all men. But while the atonement was spoken of in these universal terms, it was still regarded as limited in its application. Um, one way to put this is they did not believe in universalism. Um, rather, one must have faith to have that universal atonement applied on their behalf. So unlimited in its scope, but limited in its application, which is pretty consistent in the early church until you start seeing Origen go into universalism and then the few originists that came out of his um, um, influence. So whenever it comes to the atonement, what's interesting is that for many early Christian writers, Christ died for the whole world, and the writers would often speak of the atonement's effect on the whole created order, sometimes speaking of the deterioration of paganism and polytheism on account of that atonement. So with all this said, Christian writers assume that man was sinful from birth and needed salvation. But again, what extent they viewed this corruption, this sinfulness, we just don't know, which makes things a little bit rough. Um, in the early church, we find the belief that regeneration was given by God through baptism and that the gospel was a message of grace. Uh, these controversies that would come after this period on soteriology, you know, around Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, would break out really after Christians were granted the freedom from previous persecutions. But even then, the dust on these controversies would settle relatively quickly. The Pelagian controversy and the semi-Pelagian controversies uh, kind of disappear really quick, um, which is understandable because you have these major Christological discussions uh, and battles going on for quite some time. Now, Robert Peterson and Michael Williams and Why I'm Not Arminian summarizes as follows. Quote, While affirming the necessity of grace for salvation, early Christian theological reflection tended to be highly moralistic and even legalistic, emphasizing a view of the Christian life that focused more on conduct, often expressed as a rigorous prescription rather than grace, faith, or forgiveness. In comparison to Augustine's monergistic doctrine of grace, the teachings of the apostolic fathers tended towards a synergistic view of redemption. For them, Salvation is the result of a working together of divine grace and human agency. Human beings are fallen such that they need divine help, but that help cooperates with our own striving towards God and a moral life. Now, Kurt Daniel in his The History of Theology and Calvinism will 
basically agree with what was just said, um, except he he equates, and this is going to be an important thing to point out as we go through, but he equates synergism with semi-Pelagianism. Um, talking about the earliest Christians, when they did mention these topics, that is grace, atonement, and predestination, their views were generally a diluted version of biblical teaching. It was similar to what would later be called semi-Pelagianism or synergism. And what, what needs to be said here is that this is a presentation that often happens from Calvinistic literature. That is that synergism is equated with semi-Pelagianism. And we're going to get into semi-Pelagianism in the next episode. But it's important to, to say that semi-Pelagianism is synergistic, but not all synergistic systems are semi-Pelagianism. And again, we're going to define all those terms in the next episode, but that's a key component. Um, and if we take that equative um, semi-Pelagianism equals synergism to its logical conclusion, then ultimately any system that's not Calvinistic is uh, semi-Pelagian. And that's a problem. It, it creates a whole slew of issues on the discussion of Calvinism, Arminianism, and everything in between. And like I said, we'll flesh that out a little bit in the next episode. This one can hopefully get your you know, toes wet before we dive in more. The summary is essentially early church certainly was synergistic, had this emphasis on free will, um, how they understood the dynamics that we're really most concerned with to understand where they fall on the spectrum. They didn't really expound on what we know is that they were neither Arminian nor were they Calvinistic um, in their formal strict sense and articulations, which makes sense as we realize that they had other issues between persecutions, between um, pagans and polytheism, between Christological debates, the Trinitarian discussions, um, and a whole slew of other issues. So that's it. Um, again, if you're a patron, go pick up these notes. Um, on patreon.com forward slash Christ of the Cure. God bless you all, and I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.